It is May 29th. It's a big day in the history of mountaineering. It was on this day that Sir Edmund Hillary first reached the summit of Mount Everest. 8,800 and some meters up. But it's not just up. You've got to go through an awful lot of stuff to get there. Guess what? We're going to talk with someone in, let's check our watches, about three minutes who has done it. A Canadian who has summited at Mount Everest and did it kind of differently than some people do. Climbing Mount Everest is not free. This is a pretty expensive venture, but this next guest, or our first guest today on London Live, is somebody who has climbed Mount Everest with his family. Believe it or not, there are five of them. Now, one, unfortunately, because of an injury, could not make the entire climb, but is okay. But four of them did, and four of them made it to the top. And he will take us through exactly what you have to do in order to make that happen. There's a lot of discussion about Mount Everest leading up to this particular day. You're going to see a lot of news reports about it. And some of it goes to the commercialization that climbing Mount Everest has become. And the concern that you have, because this is not just something that you say, hey, uh, you, you know what we should do? Uh, we could book some tickets Let's see if we go online. Yeah, let's look. Okay, uh, get to Nepal, stay overnight at the Best Western, and then, yeah, this weekend, let's climb Mount Everest. You can't do that. You have to train. You have to be ready to do this. People die on Mount Everest. And in fact, this year has been one of the most tragic years. And one picture that you're going to see circulated, especially on social media, it's kind of odd. It's a lineup of people. They all seem to be wearing these big puffy coats, and they're kind of waiting to go to the top. And yeah, that, that is, that's a real picture. Uh, it's not indicative of the way that it is day after day after day, but there are a lot of people there. And there is some concern that the Nepalese government is just allowing people to do this so that they can make the money, that this is just a tourist attraction. And it's not like that. So we'll find out exactly what it takes to climb Mount Everest on the show. In a half hour from now, we're going to talk with Jim Van Horn. Now, we have to specify, being in London, Ontario, this is the other Jim Van Horn. We have our Jim Van Horn as part of 980 CFPL. This is the Jim Van Horn who is from Toronto. And this is the Jim Van Horn who is a cancer survivor. And we're going to talk about bladder cancer. You know how common bladder cancer is? It's more common than you think. But Jim is going to take us through what he has been going through because he is a bladder cancer survivor. And Bladder Cancer Canada has done something that may catch on. Uh, it involves lemons, it involves sucking lemons, and it involves taking a picture of your face after you have sucked lemons. So that's coming up in about a half hour from now. Jim Lorenz is on the show today. He was a member of the Boston Bruins in 1970 with an up-close look at Bobby Orr soaring through the air after scoring that Stanley Cup winning goal. He also played for the St. Louis Blues. We'll talk with him in about an hour from now. So a lot to come on London Live. But in honor of the anniversary of Sir Edmund Hillary, 
reaching the top of Mount Everest. Please welcome our very first guest to London Live today, Alan Mallory, part of what should be a very famous Canadian family because four of them have summited Mount Everest. And Alan, you are one of them. Uh, happy Everest anniversary. How are you doing on the anniversary of the first successful summit of the tallest mountain on the planet? I'm doing well, Mike. Great to hear. You're you're at low altitude right now? Yes, I am. That's oxygen here. Yeah, that's good. That's good, because that uh, that's one of those things that we don't really realize how quickly that disappears the higher you get up in the air. Can we talk mm-hmm. about your family? Because you have one of the most unique families anywhere in the entire world. When you say the word adventure, you kind of have to tie it right to the Mallory family. What was it about your family that got you guys doing some of the things that you did and climbing some of the mountains that you did? <laughs> well, really, in terms of the adventuresome lifestyle and setting goals, it started with my father. And he got us into uh, mountaineering. Uh, really, when my brother, I have an older brother and a younger sister, when my brother was 19, uh, was their first high altitude mountain, which was uh, Mount um, Iconcagua in South America. And then I was, I was 19 and went and climbed McKinley in Denali, uh, or not McKinley, or now it's called Denali, uh, the highest in North America. So uh, he really got us into that. I wouldn't say it was just the mountaineering, but more of the adventure lifestyle. And then uh, in 2008, well, it was really two years before uh, we set out for the climb, so 2006, uh, we started talking about the, the prospect of attempting Mount Everest. So how does that come up? Just at the kitchen table, your dad bangs his fist down and says, kids, uh, you know, most dads would say, kids, we're, we're going to drive to California. Uh, did he bang his fist down and say, kids, we're, we're off to Nepal? Well, more or less, there was, there was no fist banging, but it was he came up with the idea and certainly planted the, the seed in everyone's mind. We looked at it a little bit before then. But that's when we really started doing the research. And I think it developed into a personal uh, dream for uh, for all of us. The more uh, research we did, the more we looked into the challenges. And and, um, and so that's why we ended up uh, taking it on. And, and all five of us uh, set out on the, the adventure in 2008. Now, my mother had a fall and tore her Achilles tendon just above base camp. So she had to abandon her climb. Uh, but then, of course, the other four of us continued on, and after two months of, of climbing, we were, we were successful in the end. Unbelievable. Two mm-hmm. months it takes mm-hmm. to get there. So let's first of all look at the fact that you started in 2006 preparing for this. How much of mm-hmm. climbing Everest is research and is training? Well, I think if you want to do it safely uh, and be successful in the end, or as safe as possible, I mean, there's some real risks, and some of them you can study and understand and, and try to mitigate, and that's exactly what we did. And then some you're, you're accepting to some degree. And, um, and so it's important to understand, that, especially in our case, because we didn't have a guide, per se. Uh, we did um, have the support of a larger outfitting group, because someone has to replenish your food supplies and and um, extend our visas and all the stuff that's needed behind the scenes while we're on the mountain for two months. Uh, but uh, we, we didn't have a guide in that we had to do all the risk mitigation ourselves. We had to develop our own schedule uh, based on the information we were able to draw from our own research and, and some information from our outfitter as well. But we're making our own decisions. In, in many ways, if, you, if you're joining a guided group, you're, you're transferring those risks to the guide. 
Um, but if they uh, make a mistake, it could be your life in the end. So we wanted to be in control of when we climbed and when we didn't. So our expedition was a little bit different uh, than most for that reason. There was just the four of us, and then we did have two Sherpas, which was really our, just our connection back to our outfitter. Um, and that was part of the agreement when we were going through the negotiation is that uh, they were, because not many outfitters were open to supporting a self-guided uh, team like, like ours, um, but uh, they would be open if we did have that connection. And, um, and so that's, that was kind of the structure of our team. We're talking with Alan Mallory, part of a very famous mountaineering family from, you guys are from Utopia technically, right? No, he lived in Utopia years ago, but around the Barry area. Okay, so Barry area and mm-hmm. successful climbers of Mount Everest. So let's talk about actually flying to Nepal. How long does that flight even take? I forget the exact timing, but it's long. I mean, there's a few different legs involved. I think it's I, I a bunch of years ago now. I'm thinking the first one was 18 hours or something like that. It was. Uh, it's a long way. Mm-hmm. And then you get there, and then mm-hmm. how do you arrange to do this? You, you, it can't be that you just walk up to the base of the mountain and go, well, kids, uh, let's go one foot in front of the other. <laughs> well, we had, in the two years of planning, especially in the in the, uh, the the year before, we were doing a lot of negotiations with our outfitters. So some of the logistics were already um, in place or partially in place. Of course, we flew to Kathmandu, and we spent a few days in Kathmandu, uh, purchasing some of the equipment we hadn't brought and kind of tying up the, the loose ends before we fly to a little village called Lukla at the base of the Himalayan mountains. And that's where we start the, the, the two months of, of climbing. And there are how many phases to Everest? Well, uh, in terms of phases, I mean, we, we would really look at it in terms of the camps. I mean, we're about 10 days to get into base camp at about 17,500 vertical feet. Um, and then there are four camps above base camp. And uh, what makes Everest so challenging is on other mountains, uh, the lower altitude mountains, you can simply acclimatize. And acclimatizing is allowing your bodies to, to, to adjust and adapt and build red blood cells so that you can survive at the high altitude. You can acclimatize by simply just climbing slow enough that you don't uh, create or, or um, you don't get the onset of uh, acute mountain sickness, which if you push that, it, it leads to rupturing of your small blood cells and it leads to pulmonary edema where the blood leaks into your lungs or cerebral edema where it leaks into your brain. So the climatization is really important. Now, on, on a lot of lower uh, altitude mountains, you can just limit your speed of climbing to allow your body to adapt. But Everest is so high that you have to make these pushes into the altitude. So from base camp, for example, we push up to camp one, 19,000 feet, and then we have, if we stay there, we'll get these edemas and lose our lives. We have to come back down and allow our bodies to adjust to the stress we've just put them through. And they're creating the red blood cells at the same time. And then we're able to make another push into the altitude. And so you're going up and back between the, the, the higher camps. And you end up climbing through uh, what is arguably the most dangerous section, the, the Kumbu Icefall. Where there are about 50 of these, these crevasses in the ice, that are hundreds and hundreds of feet deep, and you're crossing on aluminum ladders, uh, you, you go through that section six times. So, uh, so that makes it challenging, and that really plays with your mind over the two months. Because after you've been up to, say, Camp 3, or, and you know all the challenges along the way, and then you come back down and, and turn around and you say, I'm going to do all that over again? Uh, that is when your mind starts coming up with reasons to, to turn back. And they're good reasons. We're, we're, we're really 
pushing our, our bodies and, and minds to the, the, the limit in many respects. What a great description, because climbing Everest mm-hmm. is not just one foot in front of the other up that same path. Like you say, you have to do mm-hmm. things over and over and over again. Make a climb, mm-hmm. come back down. Make the climb, come back down again. Mm-hmm. Now, yep. in- and there's a lot of different you know, biological things that are uh, challenges we're trying to, to, to struggle with. And also there's interpersonal challenges, mental and physical and emotional challenges. So uh, if you're going to, in the two years, I mean, there's a physical preparation involved, but there's also a, what I would call mental preparation. And the, uh, the a lot of the climbers that turn back, it's, it's just because after a month and a half, they say, I don't care what I put into this mountain, I'm going home. And I can relate. Having your family members there, did that help mm-hmm. mentally, or did it present other challenges? Well, I'd say both in, in, uh, in some ways, but more than anything, it, it ended up being an, an advantage in the end. And it wasn't so clear at first, and a lot of people, it was almost laughable. A family's going to try to attempt Everest. They won't get off the plane. <laughs> but, uh, but it soon became clear. We'd already built the trust. We'd been through a lot of different adventures together. We knew how to overcome some of these conflicts and interpersonal challenges that uh, just destroyed the majority of the teams. And, and the, the teams are very prone to when you're in, a, in uh, what could be considered a, a horrible living conditions uh, for extended periods of time in these small tents. And so uh, we looked out for each other that much more than, than uh, climbers that would join a random expedition with, with other climbers from around the world. And all of that really uh, was key to to our success, and I think that's one of the reasons why the the, the uh, when we were there the the, the success um, ratio or the, the, it was only about twenty nine percent of climbers were historically were successful up to that point, and so the odds of one of us were making it were very low. Uh, so we did some things different, and I think those things those are the types of things that we did. Uh, there's of course we. Um, we kind of have individual accountability, but there's a team accountability as well. And we, we motivate each other in that way. There's even some what I would call healthy competition that, that uh, played into that in terms of uh, motivating each other to continue on in the really tough times. Canada's own Alan Mallory joining us, part of the Mallory family, climbing Everest going back just over a decade ago. So take us to the top when you get to the portion where you can actually summit. What's that feel like as a mountaineer? Well, it's a little bit surreal at the time uh, because you can't just, well, there's a few uh, factors at play. That that particular summit push, we've been planning for weeks beforehand. You can't just kind of go up to Camp 4 and then wait for the weather to break. And that's why bad weather can really uh, sabotage an, an expedition because you've had to plan that particular push weeks in advance. You first make a push up to Camp 2, and then you go back down, and then up to Camp 3. And then when you're at Camp 4, you're in what's known as the death zone. And you can only spend maybe a couple of days in at Camp 4 because your body's just continuously degrading. And if you spend more than a few days there, you run the risk of not even having enough energy to go back down. Um, so uh, so we've done all that, and then we, we're finally able to make our push. Now, in that final... Uh, we call it a day, but it's really a day and a night because we're climbing for well over 30 hours straight. We, we climb, it takes eight hours to climb from camp three to camp four. We arrive late in the evening, but then we have to, we have maybe a few hours. We had about two hours, uh, 
to melt ice and snow mostly and uh, replenish our drinking water supplies before we head out again that night with no rest and no sleep. And, uh, and on our 12-hour summit attempt one way. So it's taking 12 hours just to, to go up from that. But we've also added that onto the eight hours we've just been climbing. So, um, so you're kind of in this state of, of delirium in many ways. Uh, and, uh, and which adds to the, the risk and, and you have, and it's having all four of us, I think, um, although my sister didn't actually summit until the, the, the following day, but, but, uh, uh, having more than one climber where we can kind of pool that limited mental capacity that we have at altitude because of the lack of oxygen to our brains, uh, was, was a real help. You know, we made some mistakes, but we were able to run, ideas past each other and try to to catch where we'd be prone to making these mistakes um so we've been climbing uh so when we finally reach the summit it's almost uh, uh 30 hours at that point um and we uh it, it's a little bit surreal but there was a feeling of elation and satisfaction uh to have put so much into the expedition to finally reached our end goal that we've been thinking about and talking about and studying for for years uh, it was pretty special. Uh, you have to be careful not to, to celebrate too much, though, because you've still got at least six hours uh, down to Camp uh, 4. And a lot of climbers lose their lives on the way down from uh, becoming complacent or just being far too exhausted to, to continue on. And, and we had our biggest scares on the way down as well. Um, so uh, we had to try to you know, keep our wits about us, let's say, and, uh, and keep moving. The temptation is to stop and rest, and at one point we actually did, but only for a very sh- short time, and then we, it was back on our feet and just keep moving, no matter if you, you don't have any energy, uh, because when you stop, it's, it doesn't take long for your body to kind of just shut down, and, um, and you never wake up. Wow. Well, Alan, it is a fascinating story, a remarkable story, and we want to thank you for sharing it with us today. On the day that Everest was climbed for the first time, you did it as a family. We really appreciate the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much. That is Alan Mallory. Climbed Mount Everest with his family members. His mom, if you missed it at the beginning, was going to go with them a fall very early on suffered a a torn Achilles or caused her to suffer a torn Achilles, and so she couldn't do it. But the rest of them were able to continue on. That really paints a picture of what it's actually like, and you realize the danger of it. You think about climbing Everest, it's not like they have a helicopter waiting at the top or a chairlift to take you back down. It comes up that you have to summit. You can take your happy picture. You can look around at the views that oftentimes are just a lot of peaks of mountains poking through clouds. And then you have to climb back down. And those six hours are some of the toughest hours. And your body is already breaking down. You can have enough of an oxygen supply. And this is one of the reasons why Everest has become even more dangerous now than what it was to climb back when the Mallory family did it just over a decade ago because you've got so many people doing it, and if there is bad weather, people will get up to that that portion at which you can summit, and they will say, okay, we're, we're so close. I'm not going back now. This, this is our chance. And then there's a break in the weather, and you've almost got to line up. And they have people who are actually dying in line because – They're so close, and they're saying, no, I'm going to do this, 
and their body just gets to a stage where it can't recover. And like Alan pointed out, their toughest challenges came getting off the peak of Everest and getting back down to that camp number four where your body just wants to stop. And if you stop, eventually it'll shut down and you will die. And you've got to keep everybody moving all the way back down just to stay alive. Wild stuff. Thank you to Alan Mallory for joining us. We'll take a break. We'll let you know what's still coming on London Live. If you missed that interview, it will be available on our podcast, which you can find later today. And you can find that at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your favorite shows. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. If Alan Mallory, who we just spoke with on London Live, happens to be inspiring you to try and climb Mount Everest yourself, we'll have a couple of details about why you need to be careful. That'll come up right after news. We are also going to talk with Jim Van Horn, the Toronto sports broadcaster, Jim Van Horn, who shares the name with our own Jim Van Horn. This one, this Jim Van Horn, is one you probably know well. You know his voice. He has one of the most recognizable voices in the country. He also has had a 10-year battle with bladder cancer that he has won. And he's helping to spread a message about bladder cancer, along with Bladder Cancer Canada. And we're going to talk about... His experience, not following the Raptors, not talking about the Blue Jays, not talking Argos or Maple Leafs, about a battle that actually nearly took his life. That's coming up in about 10 minutes. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Okay, if you are inspired and you are thinking, I need to climb Mount Everest... First off, it costs well over $25,000 to do it, so you'll have to start saving. And the reason this has become such a topic, and you'll hear so much about it in news today, is that this is the anniversary. This is the anniversary. It was on this day in 1953 that Edmund Hillary made it with a Sherpa to the top of Mount Everest. And that became a... a Big-time goal for a lot of people. And now there are more and more people doing it. And here's why it has become quite dangerous. We have seen more deaths in the last few years than we've seen ever on Everest. And Lucas Furtenbach is a guide. And he has talked about overcrowding. And he points to the fact, and he talked about this in the New York Times, that there's a lot of corruption in the Nepali government. He says, quote, they take whatever they can get. Nepali officials have, of course, turned and said, no, 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 this is not us. This is the trekking companies, and they're the reason there are so many people on the mountain. And there isn't the preparation for some people. You have to be ready. You have to be in really good physical shape. But as we heard Alan Mallory tell us, he's made it to the top of Everest. He's a Canadian from the Barrie area. This is one of those mental things, too. You've got to be in the right mental mind frame because, as Alan pointed out, this is not just about climbing one foot in front of the other until you get to the top. Everest is such that you can't climb slowly and have your body acclimatized to the conditions. You have to go up, then you have to come down. You have to go up, you have to come down. One of the most dangerous parts, and you've probably seen pictures of this, involves metal ladders over massive crevasses. 
And if you fall, that's it for you. And you're climbing and you have to cross these ladders. And you think, wow, oh, well, once you get through that, then you'd be okay. You've got to do it six times. As Alan pointed out, you do it once, you come back. You do it again, you come back. You do it again, you come back. You are trying to get your body as ready for everything. And then that final stage is not, well, let's have a good nap and uh, we'll wake up in the morning, we'll eat our breakfast, and then we'll make it to the top. Everybody ready? Okay, let's go. It isn't like that. It's basically 30 hours in a row. You're delirious. Your body is pushed to its absolute edge where if you stop, there's a very good chance it will shut down and it won't start up again. And that's why you are seeing deaths on the mountain. And in fact, Lucas Furtenbach, that guide that was referenced in the New York Times article, has said he's actually taken his climbers to what is known as the Chinese side of Everest because Nepal is so overcrowded and there are so many inexperienced climbers, it really is not safe. So if it's something that you're looking into, make sure you look long and hard at what it would take to do it and whether or not you are prepared both mentally and physically for the fight up the mountain. We're going to meet a man in just a moment. You may know him already. You certainly know his voice. You may know his face. You may know his famous mustache. He has one of the most famous mustaches. I don't know if he still has the mustache. I don't think he does. Jim Van Horn, Toronto broadcaster, is somebody who has been in an incredible fight. And that fight has been against bladder cancer, something that you don't hear enough about. There are certain forms of cancers that have a lot of charitable donations attached to them. And that's very good. The more money you bring in for anything, the closer we are to a cure, right? That's what we hope for. Well, bladder cancer is pretty common. We'll talk about that. And then we will look into Jim's fight and what he has been doing and we'll talk about why you should be buying a lemon cutting it into pieces and with you or with your friends or with your family members with your pet i don't know if you can get a pet to bite a lemon i don't think your pet would trust you after that you should suck on that lemon and as soon as your face turns very sour you should take a selfie it is called a sour face selfie and it is helping to circulate all kinds of information about bladder cancer, but we'll talk about that. While we're discussing cancer, I don't know if you saw earlier, but it has been reported on 980 CFPL, if you heard it earlier, Alex Trebek has some optimistic news about his own cancer battle. He was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer, and he's in partial remission. That was announced today. So it's at least optimistic news for another one of those Canadian icons. We'll speak with a Canadian icon next. Jim Van Horn joins us. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We have a very special guest joining us right now on London Live. Jim Van Horn has one of the most recognizable faces and voices in Canadian broadcasting and, yes, does still have the very iconic mustache. He also has a very important story. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to think for a moment about a statistic, okay? I want you to think about what could possibly be the fourth most common cancer among men. So think about all of the cancers that there are, and there are unfortunately a lot of them. What would be the fourth most common cancer in men? Got it? You got an idea in your head? 
Well, it may not be what you think. And Jim is here to talk to us about this. You can actually see his very iconic mustache right now at jvanh on Twitter. And you can see Jim sucking a lemon. I've also retweeted that on my Twitter feed at Stubbs980. And we're going to talk about why it is that Jim is sucking a lemon. But you have that answer in your head? Well, Jim, thanks for joining us on London Live. As you know too well, the answer, the fourth most common cancer among men is bladder cancer. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> and it's something you've become very familiar with. Yes, I have, Mike. Uh, I've, fortunately, I'm a survivor, and uh, bladder cancer is something that uh, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. I had it, uh, I was diagnosed 10 years ago. I was treated for eight years, and then uh, when nothing worked, it was determined that the best thing we could do was to uh, remove the bladder completely and uh, build a new one. So that's what we did. And that was two years ago. Wow. Remove the bladder completely and build a new one. I think a lot of people listening right now are unaware that was even an option. When did you uh, find you, out that that was an option? Well, I, I, I'd pretty well known all along that it was an option, but uh, it was something that I was trying to avoid because the surgery involved is, is really quite extensive because they not only remove the bladder, they take out the prostate, the lymph nodes, and uh, they take a portion of your colon approximately, oh, I would say up to six inches long, and uh, they fashion that into a new bladder. So the operation, like I said, it's, it's an extensive process. The operation took nine and a half hours. Uh, and I was in hospital recovering for uh, two weeks because of a minor complication that I had. And then it was probably another three to four months before I was able to do anything. Whew. And Jim, this is, as you outlined, a common type of cancer, yet it's not one that's very well known. What was it like dealing with that aspect of the disease? Well, you learn an awful lot about uh, the disease itself. I mean, uh, it's, as, as we mentioned, it's the fourth leading cancer among men. It's the 12th leading cancer among women, and it is the fifth overall. Um, it's a very expensive treatment to have because it keeps coming back. It keeps recurring. Uh, there's stubborn little buggers down there, and they, uh, they just, you know, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. It, uh, it costs about $250,000 per year per patient to uh, treat bladder cancer. Uh, so you can imagine, I had it for 10 years, so do the math. $2.5 million is an awful lot of money. Um, the, the, the research that is being done is very, very uh, weak. It's, uh, it's 19th on the list of all cancer research that's been going on. And when I first was diagnosed with it, my my, I asked my oncologist, I said, if this happened to me 40 years ago, how would you treat it? He said, we treat it exactly the same way as we're treating it today because there have been no advancements. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a disease that, is, that people don't talk about but is there, and it's highly treatable if you, if you catch it at the right time. We are talking with longtime Toronto sportscaster Jim Van Horn, a bladder cancer survivor. And those are amazing words how did you do it? Wow, how did I do it? That's, that's a very interesting question. Um, you know, I, everyone I found out that I was, I was going to be talking to today, I, I started thinking an awful lot about, you know, the last 10 years of my life. I think one of the things that uh, I, I've been really lucky with is the support that I got from my family. Uh, they have been there every step of the way. And bless my wife, Melanie, she is, uh, 
she has been a bear when it comes to uh, taking care of me. That was one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is the treatment and catching it early. Uh, I was lucky. I woke up one morning and uh, I, you know, went to the washroom and I looked down and it was like someone had dumped a bottle of ketchup in the toilet. And instead of being the macho kind of guy that a lot of guys are and thinking, nah, it's nothing, I'm not going to worry about it, I immediately went to the hospital. Further examination revealed the four tumors and four large tumors in the bladder. It took up half of my bladder. Uh, they were removed, and subsequent to that, I started treatment. Um, the treatment, over the eight years, I had, they, they call it uh, scraping. What they do literally is go into the bladder via catheter, and they scrape out all the tumors that keep coming back. And then after they do that, uh, you have a treatment called BCG, which is a, a, a form of chemo, but it's not really chemo. BCG is a live tuberculin virus that... Uh, that uh, kills cancer cells. Uh, it's their gold standard treatment. And I had it probably over the course of eight years. Oh, God. Probably twice a year for eight years. And uh, it never worked uh, for me. Um, and then I tried a radical treatment that used the drug mitomycin um, that still hadn't been given sanctioned by uh, OHIP. So it wasn't covered. And it was uh, <clears throat> a very expensive process. That didn't work. And after that happened, and uh, the signs that the, the cancer was getting, you know, more severe, we decided at that point to take it out. But medical coverage, family support, and attitude has a lot to do with it, Mike. And I, I believe that if you have a positive attitude, you can uh, you can win just about any battle you face. Jim Van Horn joining us, sportscaster and bladder cancer survivor. We're going to be talking about why you need to be sucking on a lemon and taking a picture of yourself in just a little bit. But, Jim, going to the washroom that morning, I mean, that that would sound like a, a very, very difficult thing to deal with. But were, were there no other symptoms before that? Four tumors in your bladder and, and you didn't know? Not a one. Not a thing. I had no pain. I had no burning sensation like you do when you uh, normally get a urinary infection. Uh, I had nothing. It was uh, one day I was fine. The next day I was uh, losing blood. And uh, I went into the hospital thinking that I was healthy and came out with bladder cancer. Simple as that. How long does it take to process that? How long before you can say, okay, I'm, I'm ready to fight? Oh, boy. You know what? Like, I, I don't think you ever process it. I think you deal with it. You go through every emotion from anger to self-pity. Why me? You know, you, you get very angry and what have I done wrong and all that kind of stuff. And then you just deal with it. Um, I was teaching at the time, teaching a broadcast course, and I, I wasn't about to allow it to, to overtake my life. So I just sort of soldiered on and, and, and got through it. But, you know, it's been 10 years. Uh, my oncologist just a couple of months ago Dr. Zlata from uh, Mount Sinai, who, by the way, is one of the best in the world, um, told me, he said, to quote, you had better start getting used to the fact that your bladder cancer is not likely to return. And to me, it was, oh, okay, at first. Then I started thinking about it. I thought, wow, maybe I've really beaten this thing. But you know what? Honestly speaking, Mike, I, I don't think you ever really have it in your mind that you beat it. Um, I know every time I go to the washroom, I am looking, I'm checking to make sure that everything is okay. Uh, every time I have a bit of a, 
you know, an, an odd feeling or a crap down there, I think, oh, my God, is it coming back? You know, it, it doesn't consume my life, but it's in the back of your mind. And uh, it's, it's, it's something that you don't, I, I guess you do come to terms with it, but you learn to live with it and uh, compartmentalize it and, uh, and you move on. Jim Van Horn joining us as we talk about bladder cancer awareness and Bladder Cancer Canada has actually kicked off a campaign and it allows us to do something that, eh, you know what, we probably should all do in life. And that is suck on a lemon and take a picture of what our face looks like. Jim, t- take us through what we, what we need to be doing right now. Well, it's very simple. You just take a lemon, you cut it into quarters, you suck it until your face starts to squeegee up. And then you take your selfie and you post it online, whether it be Twitter or uh, LinkedIn or Facebook, wherever you want to do it, Instagram, wherever you want to put it. And uh, tell people to go to bladdercancercanada.org and make a donation to uh, Bladder Cancer Canada so we can uh, increase the amount of research that's being done and let people see how truly beautiful you are when you've been sucking on a lemon for a couple of minutes. (laughs) (laughs) There's a hashtag you can use. It's Sour Face Selfie, which about sums it up. Sour Face (laughs) Selfie. Jim, have you done this? I'm doing it today. Are you really? Jim, it's been fantastic talking with you. Um, you have one of the most recognizable voices and faces in the sports world to this day. Any thoughts on uh, on Raptors or Mitch Marner or any of those things? Well, Raptors have got a huge mountain to climb. I mean, Golden State, they're going to be tough. But it, it can be done. I mean, Milwaukee was the highest scoring team in the East last year, last season, and uh, Toronto took care of it. I don't think you can underestimate them. And I think if they do win, it'll be a, a lovely going away present for Kawhi Leonard. Ah, well said. Jim, it again has been fantastic talking with you. We'll look forward to that picture later today on your Twitter. Uh, I'm not looking forward to it, but it'll be there. I'm going to do one myself, so uh, I'll match Great. you later on tonight. Mike, thank you so much. Jim, thank you. That is Toronto sports broadcaster, national sports broadcaster, Jim Van Horn, J Van H is his Twitter handle if you want to go and check out that picture. J Van H. Let's take a break. We'll let you know what's still ahead on London Live. We'll talk with a Stanley Cup champion, and we're also going to get a sense of what it's like to walk around in maybe the, the suit of armor that Iron Man would wear, only you're not wearing a suit of armor. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Even if you weren't there, even if you weren't around, and there's a decent chance of that, it was 1970. Even if you weren't there or around, you probably have seen either the video of Bobby Orr scoring the Stanley Cup winning goal and then soaring through the air, or you have seen that particular image captured, put on a poster, put in a picture somewhere. It's probably on a postcard. We're going to talk with somebody in about 10 minutes from now who had a really good view of that. And it wasn't on a TV, and it wasn't from the stands. He was a member of the Boston Bruins with Bobby Orr. Jim Lorenz, who won the Stanley Cup in 1970, is going to join us with all kinds of stories about playing, not just in that game. This guy played, remember the fog game between Buffalo and Philadelphia? He was in that. So we'll talk about that, too. 
This is not only the anniversary of climbing Mount Everest, this is the anniversary of the London Knights reaching their own Mount Everest twice. It was on this day, May 29th, that they won both their Memorial Cups. How weird is that? 2005 and 2016. I'll have a story from each of those years and Memorial Cup wins. And we'll also talk with Jeanette Wilson and Jacob Ajami. And Jacob lives every day with arthritis. I don't think you necessarily realize what it's like to go through juvenile arthritis. I know I didn't until I met Jacob. We'll meet him because he's going to stop by the studio later on in the show. Next, we've got news. This is Global News Radio 980 CFBL. Loads of sports stuff happening. Yesterday, we talked about ticket prices for the Raptors. They're not getting any cheaper. And we did get some insight into why it's worth it. Yeah, the father-son thing, yeah, you, you can get that. I wonder, and here's something maybe we'll ask tomorrow, on the day of Game 1 for the Toronto Raptors, what would be bigger now? Don't even put into the equation the Leafs winning the Stanley Cup. That would be the biggest in, say, Ontario and most parts of Canada. That would be the biggest thing. But if you were to look, Toronto Blue Jays winning the World Series or Toronto Raptors winning the NBA championship, which one would be bigger? I'm kind of leaning NBA. I'm the guy who thinks baseball's got 50 years left. Probably most sports have 50 years left. I don't know. The earth may have 50 years left. I just think baseball, the clock's ticking on baseball. That's going away. And I know if you're a baseball purist, no, 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 no. Baseball's not going anywhere. Uh, Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. There are people who love to play it, and softball will always be a thing, but I think Major League Baseball will be the first of the major sports in North America to really struggle. It will be the one where you're really begging to get people to go. And I know winning brings people in. It's not about that. No, this is about the overall game. They've got a demographic problem, and they've got an entertainment problem, and they keep trying to make the game faster. The game is what it is. It is a thinking person's game. You understand it, you love it. But the casual fan... They'll struggle more and more. Baseball, tick, 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 tick. So I think it's leaning more toward NBA. We will talk more about that tomorrow. Right now, we have an opportunity to speak with somebody who had a pretty good seat to watch Bobby Orr score that iconic Stanley Cup winning goal in 1970 because he was wearing the same uniform that Bobby Orr was. Jim Lorenz was a member of the Boston Bruins. Now, Game one is over between the Bruins and the Blues, and no, Bobby Orr didn't go soaring through the air then. But seeing those uniforms on the ice in the Stanley Cup final together, didn't those bring back memories of the last time they met? Jim Lorenz was there, and not just there. He was there. He was on the Bruins. And now he is here with us on London Live. Jim, how do you remember that goal? I remember it uh, almost as if it happened yesterday, uh, the play, of course, it was in overtime at the Boston Garden. The puck went deep into the uh, um, St. Louis zone, and it was Derek Sanderson, uh, who I played with in junior, actually, in Niagara Falls, uh, who ended up with the puck in the corner. And, of course, Bobby Orr uh, was so great at uh, being about two or three plays ahead of everyone else, uh, sensed uh, an opening towards the front of the St. Louis net, and Derek made that pass, and uh Bobby, of course, uh, scored the goal, and it was uh, Noel Picard, actually, I, I think, who tripped him up. And uh, 
that was um, uh, an incredible relief to see that goal uh, go in the net. Uh, the Boston Garden just went crazy, and the city of Boston went crazy because it was the first Stanley Cup they had won in, uh, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but something like 42 or 43 years. So it was uh, it was a memorable experience for me. It was my first full season in the NHL, and, and to play with uh, such great players as Bobby Orr, uh, Johnny Busick, uh, Phil Esposito, Wayne Cashman, Sanderson, right on down the line, Jerry Cheevers, uh, uh, it was a, a memorable thing and something I will never forget. Tremendous team. You mentioned Bobby Orr being just that many steps ahead of the play. How do you play with somebody like that? What do you have to be doing? Well, you've, you've got to put your stick on the ice because uh, the the puck just may be right on your stick with an open net staring at you. Uh, no, he was... Uh, the, the one thing you had to guard against was standing around watching Bobby do his thing. Uh, you, you had to get in there and start contributing, but uh, uh, he was a remarkable player who, who changed the whole concept of how to play defense in the National Hockey League. Uh, and I, I think what's a shame is uh, he only played like 10 years because of knee problems. Uh, goodness knows if he was healthy uh, what he what he would have gone on to accomplish, but uh, he was uh, just in a, in a class of his own. He was on a different planet. Um, a remarkable competitor. Uh, first in the dressing room. Uh, just you know, just loved to play the game, and uh, uh, he played it uh, at, in those days just better than anyone else. What was he like at practice? Because a lot of times you hear players do things in practice they would never try in games. When you see all the things that Bobby Orr tried in games, would he try things in practice that would be even more outstanding? Oh sure, I mean he he was just uh, uh, so far ahead of everyone else. Uh, just a skating ability, and uh, um, you know, he had an incredible shot from the point, um, and seldom missed the net. And uh, matter of fact, uh, the the first goal I scored in the NHL was uh, on a Bobby Orr shot. Uh, I was standing in front of the net and ended up deflecting it uh, into the net. That was against Pittsburgh, but uh, uh, he was just. Uh, uh, just a great guy, and that was the other thing, uh, a terrific teammate. But he, he had such a, a great cast around him also uh, on that Bruins team, uh, you know, Hall of Famers like, like Johnny Busick, and, and I mentioned uh, Phil Esposito, uh, just a very um, close-knit hockey team the Bruins were in those days and with great chemistry. We're talking with Jim Lorenz. National Hockey Leaguer, Stanley Cup champion with those Boston Bruins against the St. Louis Blues in 1970. The celebration, take us to the dressing room. Anything stand out from the dressing room or or on the ice or shortly after that goal was scored? Well, the, the dressing room was chaos. Um, we were, of course, celebrating. And I remember there, there was a... Uh, uh, a drinking establishment uh, we sometimes frequented, frequented uh, close to the Boston Garden in those days. It was called the Club 99, and it was two or three uh, floors uh, comprised this uh, this establishment. And I remember being up on the third floor, and we were having a few beers, and there were so many people up there that they were afraid that the floor was going to collapse. And... Uh, that was the kind of celebration it was. And then they had the, uh, what I do remember, too, about the parade they had in Boston. It was just incredible, the number of people that came out. And, uh, um, you know, that 
to celebrate with us, and uh, it was something that, as a rookie in the National Hockey League, uh, you always remember. And you know, people ask me uh, uh, today, uh, what would you what would you tell someone um, who is in that position as a player to play in the Stanley Cup playoffs? And I had to think for a while, and. And as I look back, I think what you have to do is recognize the moment and recognize you may never get there again and enjoy the moment. And uh, it's it's something you'll always cherish as a, as a hockey player, especially if you win. Now, I was on the losing end of the Stanley Cup, too, uh, playing for the uh, Sabres in 75 when we lost to the Philadelphia Flyers. And that was a, a bitter pill to, to swallow. But that Stanley Cup in Boston uh, was, was just really something extra special. Jim Lorenz joining us, National Hockey Leaguer, Stanley Cup champion, Boston and St. Louis, getting going in the Stanley Cup final this year. You had to make an interesting transition as a player. You mentioned that season with Boston had been your first full season in the National Hockey League. You'd been in the organization for a couple of years, breaking in, and then all of a sudden, you have to walk into the St. Louis Blues dressing room. What was that like? Well, that was that was different. Uh, it was a different uh, culture in St. Louis as compared to Boston. Boston was uh, um, sort of freewheeling, and um, yeah, Harry Sinden was a coach there, and he basically just left the players alone and let and let them play. Uh, he knew, you know, the kind of talent that he had. St. Louis was uh, was a little uh, tight of ship, let's put it that way. And it's uh, interesting because Al Arbor was the coach. In St. Louis, when I, w- I was traded there, incidentally, about two weeks after we had won the Stanley Cup, but Al Arbor was the the coach there, and Scotty Bowman was the general manager. And I don't know, uh, fifteen twenty games into the season, he decided that he was going to take over as coach, and Al Arbor was um, uh, put back in as an active player. So that's where Al got to start, and that was uh, my first experience with Scotty Bowman. You mentioned playing with uh, so many of the the great guys on Boston, playing under somebody like Scotty Bowman. What what was he like as a coach back then? Well, he was pretty tough on young players. Uh, He was very demanding, and um, uh, he he liked to play like mind games with you. And uh, um, but goodness, I mean, you can't argue with the success he's had. And it was, it was a big transition for me because I, I just wasn't used to that uh, that kind of treatment. Uh, whereas I said Boston, we were just sort of fun-loving and having a good time, and the Blues were a little bit different. So, so that was a, a pretty big transition for me to make. But, um, uh, you know, I, I had a pretty good season the first year in St. Louis, as it turned out, and then I was traded uh, the following year to the New York Rangers, where I spent a couple of months and then on to Buffalo. And when you got to Buffalo, you talk about playing in that Stanley Cup final. You would have played in the Fog game. Oh yeah, yeah that that was uh, that was really something. Uh, it was in May, and of course it was warm outside, and the auditorium in Buffalo had no dehumidifier or uh, or air conditioning, and there were so many people packed in the building, and it was so hot that the uh, uh, the, the, the fog started rising up off the ice, and I mean. <laughs> To this day, I still remember uh, the rink attendants wearing skates, skating around uh, with blankets, trying to disperse the fog. And I saw a goal. It was, uh, I believe, it was Game Five uh, when Rennie Robert 
scored in overtime. He literally materialized out of the fog and shot and shot the puck by uh, Bernie Perrant, who was in the net. Uh, uh, and incidentally, Bernie was uh, just marvelous in that series. Uh, he won the Conn Smythe Trophy, but uh, we we had a heck of a time scoring goals on him, and that was one of the major reasons why Philadelphia won that series. Even when you could materialize out of the fog, Jim Lorenz with yeah. us, Stanley Cup champion, Jim. How often do you think about hoisting the Stanley Cup over your head? Because you're one of the few people that has been able to do it. Yeah, I wish I could do it again. I wish I had done it again. Uh, it, it's a it's a feeling that that's hard to explain. I mean, uh, I, I would say the prep, maybe the Stanley Cup, maybe the the most famous uh, trophy in, in all the sports. Uh, um, I mean, what, what always gets me when I look at these Super Bowl trophies, I mean, there's there's nothing to them. Whereas the Stanley Cup, there's there's real substance there and incredible history, uh, all the names on the cup, and uh, uh, it was uh, it was it was some feeling skating around, holding that above your head uh, in the Boston Garden with the crowd just uh, going bonkers. Well, Jim, somebody's going to get the chance to do that very soon, and they'll be either a member of those Boston Bruins or maybe a member of the St. Louis Blues. It's been fantastic talking with you. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Jim Lorenz won a Stanley Cup with the Boston Bruins in 1970. This day, May 29th, is a pretty big day in London Knights history. They won both their Memorial Cup championships on this day. Next, a couple of stories, including one from Dale Hunter from each of those Memorial Cup championships. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. How strange is it that the London Knights have won the Memorial Cup on the same day twice? Probably not that strange. I don't know. You'd have to be deep into numerology to figure that one out. I mean, the Memorial Cup usually runs at the end of May. Odds are somebody's going to win on May 29th every once in a while. Knights did it in 2005, did it in 2016. But there are still some great stories that come out of both of those championships. In 2016, one of the wildest stories actually deals with guys who would later become stars on the Knights and now are about to start their professional careers. Evan Bouchard was one. Alex Formanton was another. Nick Mattinen, who played for the London Knights and then won an OHL championship with Hamilton last year, went on to play with Oshawa this year. He was another one of the people who didn't have a seat. The Centrium in Red Deer, it was interesting because when teams not named the Red Deer Rebels were playing, all of the seats were sold out at the beginning of the game. And there happened to be a fan zone connected right to the rink. The Centrium's a a big community complex. And so they had bands and they had a beer tent. They had all kinds of stuff. So depending on how the game was going, fans would leave. And at times, it would look pretty empty. Well, for the final, it was full. Nobody was leaving. Nobody was going to the beer tent. There was no band playing. This was the event. The Memorial Cup final between the London Knights and the Rouen Aranda Huskies. And teams playing only get a certain number of tickets. So all of the tickets were gone. There were lots of moms and dads that had made their way there. Tyler Parsons' mom and dad took this wild trip throughout the United States, came north through Montana, ended up getting to the border at about 2 in the morning. 
And the border between Montana and Alberta is not a fancy place. It's basically a fence with a gate. And they got there and there was nobody there. And they'd driven about 150 miles from the last piece of civilization. So it's not like you were going to go back. They were at the border. Somebody's got to let them through. Eventually, this pickup truck comes rumbling along the road. And they're told, oh, yeah, the border uh, opens at 8 in the morning. I said, what are you talking about opens at 8 in the morning? Yeah, it's closed. They couldn't get through. So they ended up sitting there and sleeping. But in other words, a lot of people had come to Red Deer by the time the Knights had made the Memorial Cup final. So there were no tickets, no seats for guys like Alex Formanton and Evan Bouchard and Nick Matinen and a few other members of the Knights staff. So they were actually in the Knights dressing room underneath the stands watching the game on TV in the dressing room. It's the only place they could see it. And because TV, and you know this if you've listened to a radio broadcast and watched a game, the TV is delayed about seven seconds. So as you watch the Ruan Naranda Huskies in overtime with the Knights and the Huskies tied 2-2, dump the puck into the London zone. And as they do that, as these guys were watching on TV in the dressing room, you heard this enormous cheer. And these guys thought, oh, no. We've lost because it made sense. And then very quickly, Aiden Jamison passes the puck over to Matthew Kachuk. He carries it down the ice and within about six seconds, fires a puck at the net and it goes in. And they realize that they'd won. And then in their equipment, they run out and they get in on the celebration and everything. So that all worked out fine for them. That was one of the stories that you don't necessarily hear from that Memorial Cup win. The other one actually came during the game. The Knights were losing that game. It's hard to even remember that now. The Knights had scored the first goal. 11 seconds later, Ruan Aranda tied it. And then the Huskies went ahead. And they were winning 2-1. And it was down to just over four minutes left in the game. And the whistle went. And the game went to its final TV timeout. So a final 90 seconds. But the London Knights weren't exactly optimistic. They were down 2-1. Not much time left on the clock. In fact, here, here is how Dale Hunter remembers the moment. We were in trouble here a bit, and, and uh, Brandon Crowley came down the bench, right in the middle of the whole bench, started, we don't quit. We don't end it this way. This is not happening. This is not happening. He kept on saying, this is not happening for, for like, I don't know, for like one whole minute. And sure enough, and he just went back and sat down. Nobody else spoke. No, nothing was said. All of a sudden, their heads picked up. And they went out and got it done. Now, Dale, of course, is as humble as it comes. At that very same time, Dale Hunter sent out Christian Dvorak to take a face-off. And normally, the way that they had been doing things, Christian Dvorak was the best face-off guy on the team, so he would take all of the important face-offs. And this was a face-off in the London end. He would try and win the face-off, and if he did, the Knights would get the puck out of the zone, and Dvorak would come off and wait to go out with his regular line mates, Mitch Marner and Matthew Kachuk. Dale Hunter watches Christian Dvorak skating away, and he says, Hey, Devo, stay out. And he waves him out, saying, Don't come back to the bench. And when you ask Dale about that, he's not sure why he did it, just things weren't going well, wanted to change things up. Dvorak won the face-off. The Knights got the puck down the ice. They chipped it into the right corner. They got it out in front. And who was standing there? Christian Dvorak, who shouldn't have been on the ice. And he scored to tie the game. 
So that's another one of those things from that game. The best one from 2005, one of my favorites from 2005, and there are a lot of great stories, was Adam Dennis trying to let Dale Hunter know that he wanted to start in net because the Knights had been kind of flip-flopping back and forth between Adam Dennis and Gerald Coleman as goalies. And Adam Dennis came into the rink late that night. Dale Hunter was in the coach's office. Nobody else was in the building. And Dale was going over video and going over final game plans to try to beat Sidney Crosby and the Ramuski Oceanic. And he's sitting at that time, the coach's office was right inside the dressing room door. So he's sitting at his desk and somebody walks by his office door that was open. And he thought it was, you know, maybe Chris Matten, the equipment manager coming in. That wasn't out of the question. And he didn't really catch sight of the person, didn't really think too much of it. And then he watched somebody walk by again. He thought, that's odd. And he saw that it looked like a player. And so he waited for a second. And then all of a sudden, for a third time, that same person walked by and he caught a glimpse that it was Adam Dennis. And Dale says, Adam, is everything okay? And Adam Dennis leans around the corner of the doorway and says, Dale, if you put me in net tomorrow... We will win the Memorial Cup. And I think Dale probably grabbed a pen and wrote down starting goalie, Adam Dennis. Loves that kind of confidence. Adam Dennis stopped 28 shots the next day. The Knights shut out Sidney Crosby and the Ramuski Oceanic. And on May 29th, going back 14 years ago, they won the Memorial Cup. We'll take a break. We have news next. And then we'll talk about Life with arthritis. I don't know if you realize this. Do you know what it feels like to have juvenile arthritis? To deal with what arthritis brings? You think, well, it's it's painful joints. Mm, not really. We're going to meet somebody who can describe exactly what it was like. And one of the things that he will tell us is it's a lot like being in the suit that Iron Man made, only you don't have the powers. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. Just ran into Eric Scott in the lunchroom. I went to get some more water. Eric's one of the most brilliant guys I've ever worked with. You hear him a lot on commercials on 980 CFPL. And just to prove his brilliance, he says he's new to bananas. And he was eating a banana. I don't know how you can be new to bananas. But he'd never really eaten a lot of bananas in his life. And yet there he was opening the banana the right way. You know the right way to open a banana. You don't take the part that was stuck to the tree and try and twist that off. That squooshes and smooshes the top of the banana. Sometimes it opens nicely, sometimes it doesn't. The right way to get into a banana is actually go to the end of the banana and then just kind of flick that off. And that's what he was doing. I said, how did you know to do that? He said, I've been to the zoo. Coming up, we are going to talk about arthritis and the walk for arthritis but we're going to meet somebody who can really put a face on what living with arthritis is like why is that because that's exactly what he does day after day after day you might think of arthritis as being something that provides you with soreness in your joints no not it not it in fact imagine you were young and could take part in tackle football at recess you know, you don't want to do that into your 40s and 50s. Tackle football, that's, that's, you're just asking for something bad to happen. You're just asking to be in, a, in like a cast or you're just asking for a sprain and some crutches. 
You know better by then. But when you're a kid, that's just something you do. Well, what if tackle football, instead of just being something fun you do at recess, ended up costing you a week or two? I mean, of your life, because you aren't able to get out of bed. Well, that's one of the things that we'll talk about. And we'll look ahead to the walk for arthritis coming up on Sunday in London. We'll have details on that for you. Jeanette Wilson and Jacob Ajami join us next on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We have guests in the studio, and for a very important reason, the Walk for Arthritis comes up on Sunday in London. And joining us right now, we have Jeanette Wilson and Jacob Bajami. Welcome to the studio, both of you. As Jeanette, we get ready for, let me count this up, the 10th walk for all, for arthritis coming up on Sunday. Yes, our 10th. Our 10th anniversary walk for arthritis. And for anyone who has not signed up yet, it's not too late, is it? Oh, no, absolutely not. Yes. So if you want to go to the AM980 station website, they have all the details you need. Okay, excellent. So 980cfpl.ca, and you can find all the details taking place this weekend. Sunday. Wow. I know. Well, that is getting close, but we're going to talk a little bit today about why this happens and what it can benefit. Because, Jacob, you're somebody who lives with arthritis. I am, yeah. I've been having it since I was about two. When somebody asks you what life is like with arthritis, is there a way to put it into words? Everybody asks me, and every time I got to see something different, because it's always something different for me, but... um, Personally, for me, the biggest, easiest way to explain it to you was imagine you got a suit of armor around your body, like the Iron Man suit, but like not powered, I guess. <laughs> now try walking around with that. Yeah. That's how, that's how it is starting off until you get used to the weight of it and the use of the feeling of it. And then you just kind of get used to it, kind of move around on your own again. So in other words, your movements feel heavy. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Really? You kind of get used to, you kind of like what's kind of like numbs out. You kind of get used to the weight of it. You get, Yeah. But you don't know what life is like without arthritis, having had it since I don't you were know. two. You don't remember. No. <laughs> you don't. My remember. life isn't spliced with it for a really long time, so it's just it's my life now. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? Because you know other uh. people are moving around <laughs> a little bit more freely yeah. without Iron yeah. Man suits. Um, personally, um, self care first of all is the biggest one. Make sure you're taking care of yourself. Um, make sure you take your medication on time. Make sure you get those stretches done in the morning if you're stiff. And make sure you talk to your doctor, really. Your doctor's probably one of the best people who can help you out with it. They're one of the professionals in the situation. They know what medication help you out, what medication help with pain, stiffness, exercises, stretches, that kind of stuff. You mentioned the suit of armor feeling. Yeah. You just used the word pain. Yeah. How much pain is there? Starting off, there's going to be a bit. There's going to be a little bit because what happens with arthritis is that it'll start in one point or it can start at many points and it'll just start to spread out like a spider web. Personally, it started for me in my right leg. I got to tell you, the first year, it was painful. It was hard to get up in the morning and go to school. Wow. So how old would you have been then? Three or four. I would have been starting maybe early years of like preschool or something. Yeah. So you'd wake up in the morning, you'd have... Pain, pain in your I, leg. Yeah. So basically for me in the morning, what happens is like I'd have stiffness, what's called stiffness. And once your legs are, your body's having a hard time moving because you're just waking up 
It's like that numb feeling when you sit in the toilet for too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically that in the morning. So personally for me, I wake up with that in my right leg and I just, I wouldn't be able to move. I have to get up, stretch around, make sure I get my body really good, uh, uh, stretched out and mellowed out just to make sure I can actually move the rest of the day. We're talking with Jacob Ajami, and we're talking with Jeanette Wilson, Manager of Community Development with the Arthritis Society. As the Walk for Arthritis comes up this Sunday, you can go to 980cfpl.ca and you can find all of the information there. How did your parents tell a three-year-old what was going on? How do you communicate that to somebody that small? <laughs> um, I really didn't realize it until I was about five or six when it kind of actually hit me that I was a lot different than our kids. <laughs> um, I was maybe starting kindergarten and a lot of the kids doing stuff I wasn't able to do, like um, play mini baseball or t-ball, that can play soccer, that kind of stuff, and I always wanted to do that. My parents... They, they they wanted to protect me from me hurting myself. So they, they didn't tell me what was going on initially. They told me, like, no, it's too dangerous. Just level up for now. I started getting older. I started to realize I'm a lot different. I'm starting to, like, think about myself. And I go to my own dad. I was like, what's going on with me? Like, this isn't right. Then they come down. They tell me, so when you were two, this happened. Like, you were diagnosed with arthritis, juvenile arthritis. And I went, what? <laughs> That's what that my grandfather has. What do you mean? They're like, Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it, it kind of hit me like a bus. My parents, I, I was there when they diagnosed me, but I was such a young kid, and I didn't process it right. I was just like, ooh, cool doctor, big white coat, right? You're, right. you're like, that's shiny, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and when you get older, you start realizing things are really different. Like, I don't play football. I don't play soccer or anything. My parents really protect me from the risk of getting hurt and getting into a worse position until I got older, and I start questioning them about it. Like, why can't I do these things? Like, I'm a curious kid now. Why am I allowed to do these things? They told me straight up, they're like, you, you're different. You got arthritis. You got to be more careful than everybody else. And it was the year when I wanted to start playing, like, soccer and baseball with all my friends in the neighborhood. I wanted to go swimming and do all these really fun and dangerous things for a kid. But they were like, no, <laughs> you can't because like, it'll put you in a worse position. I remember this one time. I was I was not very smart. <laughs> uh, later on in high school, I attempted to play grade 9 football. I got tackled. I was not able to go to school for a week and a half because my legs were out of commission. He took me right from the legs. Like, as you, as you tackle on football, legs, you push up. He got me right in my legs, and I was having a really bad time with him, and it just knocked me out. I was I was stiff for a whole week, could not go to school. My parents were really mad at me. <laughs> and this I, this was something that would be pretty normal. This this wasn't anything yeah. that was out like of the ordinary. A normal kid would get hit by a football player. I'd be like, hey, let's go for another round. I'd be like, I can't move. <laughs> and that's <laughs> what my dad. <laughs> really? Yeah. So there is that kind of an effect because that's the other thing. You start wondering, well, well, why couldn't you? Yeah, yeah, maybe it's a little dangerous. There are actual effects. There are actual effects and, and the consequences of it, and as growing up, yeah, you're, you have to be a little protective, maybe a little styrofoam wrap around you, but it, it, it does help you. It does help you prepare for kind of the real world because in the real world, mom and dad's not going to be there to help you out and protect you from what's going on. You got to be able to know if I do this, what's going to happen tomorrow morning? Or for me personally, if I go for a run or go to the gym late at night in the morning, I know I'm going to be stiff or I'm going to be a little sore. I got to be ready. got to be prepared for I got to have something set out for myself to actually help myself get through. Like personally, I have a mini fridge in my room. It's really cool. Um, <laughs> I have ice packs in there. And I can literally just reach open in the fridge, pull an ice pack out and put it on my leg or whatever the area is affecting. If I did have a previous night where I was doing a lot of physical activity. We're talking right now with Jacob Ajami, who suffers from arthritis. It can't still be termed juvenile arthritis. You're you're not very juvenile I, I'm anymore. I'm 20 years old now, so I, I am an adult. <laughs> yeah. So does that kind of a thing change? Um, To be honest, adults are a lot more understanding of, of, of what I have, and they're also not very understanding. 
Um, I still get professors or um, even like other adults around me who don't believe I have arthritis. I'd email a professor and be like, my arthritis is acting up. I can't attend class. Can I have such justice for supplementary? They'd be like, you ever, what do you mean you have arthritis? I get email back paying. There's nothing I profound about arthritis. You not get this. And I was like, all right, I got to do this now. So I actually have to go through and explain to them what's going on with me. And even other adults that I'd meet that, that wouldn't know me personally, they'd be like, why are you lying to me? And I'm like, no, I, I'm serious. <laughs> Did you ever ask the question, where is this going to take you? Did you ever wonder, okay, what happens now that you know you yeah. have it, what happens going forward? What does it do to your life? Um, I, I have thought about that a couple of times. And um, I'm a very live in the present kind of person, go with the flow. But I have thought about the future a lot. And I personally think as long as I keep pushing myself, keep myself in the path I'm going to keep those close to me who are close to me right now, I'll be, I'll be in a good place. I will be. I, I've always been a person to push my limits. Uh, I, I never knew them at the first, but I'm still pushing them to this day, going for runs, going for walks, all the kind of stuff. They're pushing my physical self and pushing my mental self to be able to say, I did this or I did that. Because in the end, what's going to be is that capacity I have at that point is going to be with me at the end of my life. You're at Western now. I am, yes. <laughs> what's the dream? Um, Accounting. Nice. Accounting business, yeah. And then hopefully my master's in forensic accounting. Hey, yeah. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And you're enjoying it so far? I love it. <laughs> well, it is great to see the smile yeah. that you have. It's great to see the attitude that you have. How do you keep your attitude? Um, I kind of wake up every morning. I, 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 I always think to myself, I ask myself, I was like, how can I make today better than yesterday? And, and personally, it, it, I just make it better myself. I, I got to go out there. I got to do my own thing. Got to have my own fun. I have to make sure I'm also, I'm keeping my, my, my academics good. I'm also keeping myself good, my social life good. Because in the end, after school's done, who's going to be there around you? you got your family, your friends are around you. And those people are going to make you happy. Keep a smile on your face. And, and my family has been with me through this journey. I really appreciate them in this. And they've been with me while I pushed myself, while I hurt myself, on my down days, on my up days, on the week longs. I've had casts on my knees because I could not stop moving them. <laughs> And they've been with me, and they're they're really my source of of fuel to keep going during the day because I know I'm pushing myself for them, pushing myself at the end of the day to go do stuff with them, go to the parks with them, go to the parks with my younger brother, my my cousins. I want to be able to do that, and that's why I have pushed myself. Well, you are an amazing guy, <laughs> Jacob Jami, in studio with us with Jeanette Wilson, and Jeanette. Jacob is is one example <laughs> that we would be helping out at the walk for arthritis. When you look at the money raised, how is that used to help people like Jacob and to help people who are are still yet to be diagnosed? Oh, hundred percent. Uh, you know, one in five Londoners have arthritis. One in five. It's a lot of Londoners, and that makes for an <laughs> awful lot of Londoners. Yes. Really, one in one five. in five. And uh, you know that that it, it represents three in a thousand kids. You know, there is a huge demographic out there and we are here not only to support the research in arthritis. We are leaders in research. Mm -hmm. We want to find cures for every condition. We want to find better diagnostic tools. There's a lot of kids that are going one, two, three years without diagnosis simply because the tools doctors have aren't there yet. We're working on it. We also want to get better medications. A lot of our kids start on forms of chemotherapy. Cortisone shots, high, high end painkillers, high end anti inflammatories. These drugs are damaging as much as they are helping. <laughs> we want to find better um, treatment plans so that people like Jacob and the six million other Canadians <laughs> can have better options. Um, locally, we support uh, summer camps for kids. 
we have six summer camps across the country. Jacob I has <laughs> gone to camp with us, and now he's uh, you know now he's come returning to camp. Now more as a counselor yeah. than yeah. he is a camper, but it's it's such a wonderful experience. Jacob, even part of his story was feeling isolated until yeah. the society introduced him to other kids yeah. just like him. Hmm. And so we do have programs like our free family days where we bring these families in London together. They can learn, grow, share, and connect. So there's so many local ways we help and there's so many national ways we help. We need London's help to make a real difference. Walk for Arthritis coming up this Sunday. You can head to 980cfpl.ca for all of the details. Thank you both for coming in today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Jeanette Wilson, Jacob Ajami, Walk for Arthritis. And it begins at Ivy Park. So that's one of those parks. When you say Victoria Park to somebody who's lived in London for a while, I know where that is. When you say Gibbons Park, yeah, Harris Park, gotcha. Ivy Park, Ivy Park. It is just off Thames Street, so if you think about going just south of Budweiser Gardens, you can get to it off York. Uh, You can get to it if you go down Thames Street, so you can envision, envision it now, right? It's kind of across from Harris Park, across the river from Harris Park, got it? So that's where they begin. And everything gets going. Registration at 9 o'clock. There's a one-kilometer walk. There's a 5K walk. There's a fun run. And they'll get all of that going at 10 in the morning. Craig Needles is going to be there. So you'll have yourself an absolutely amazing time. And you will be helping out people like Jacob. We'll take a break, and we'll close out the show next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. There is a really interesting story at globalnews.ca right now. Remember when the federal government made changes to drinking and driving laws that would allow officers to ask for a breathalyzer test after someone had returned home? Remember those? That's what this deals with. And it happened out in Nanaimo, B.C. And it happened to a woman by the name of Lee Lowry. And again, you can go to globalnews.ca and there's a video you can watch, but let me kind of run through the story before we close out the show. Lee Lowry claims that she got a call from the RCMP and they said, according to her, there was a personal issue they needed to speak to her about. And she admits that her mind right away went to, "Uh uh-oh, what's wrong Is one of my family members in trouble? Is one of my family members hurt? So she said, yeah, come on over. Let's talk about this. She had traveled to Maple Ridge, B.C. and had stopped at a local pub for lunch. She and her boyfriend had each had, she says, one cocktail with their meal. And then they headed back to her boyfriend's place, which is where the RCMP ultimately found her. She said when they arrived at her boyfriend's place, they went out by the pool and had a few beers because they weren't going to leave again. She was going to stay there. That's when police arrived two hours after they had returned home, requested a breathalyzer test. She gave the test, or she blew into the breathalyzer, and she blew over. Now, at the same time, she said, no, but the alcohol I've consumed, I've consumed here at this residence and in fact come on out by the pool i can show you the empties 
here's what we were drinking. And, you know, <laughs> the beer is still on the can where I was sipping from it. You, you can see that these aren't old empties, that kind of thing. She was given a 90-day license suspension, 30-day vehicle impoundment. She fought this and won. But she says it cost her about $3,500 with lawyer expenses, travel, taxi, because, again, she had a 90-day suspension and lost vacation hours. And she said it, it hurt her livelihood. She said she's never had a traffic violation in 25 years. It was horrible. I encourage you, go to globalnews.ca right now and or Google her name again is Lee Lowry, L-O-W-R-I-E. Interesting story. One of the things that we heard about when the change was made to the legislation, and she fought it and she won, but her story is available at globalnews.ca. We are out of time for today. Thanks to Matt McKinnis for all of his help. London Live is brought to you by courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. News is on the way next with Jacqueline LaBelle. You are listening to Global News Radio 980 CF. Yeah.